Vincent Werbos, Derby. So we're in Philippians. We are on a bit of a journey through the book of Philippians, and this letter has been written by Paul to people um, in Philippi who were like the early church in Philippi. He had visited them a couple of times on some of his missionary journeys. He had um, spent some time with them, set up this church, ran away. Uh, And when I say run away, he ends up in prison. And he's writing to real people in a real place at a real time. Jeopardy, is that the that American TV show where you give, get given the answer and you have to work out what the question was? Um, we have to play that a little bit with the text. So we, we can read the letter and we can work out what the, uh, Paul's answers are, and so we have to work out what some of the questions might have been beforehand. But Paul was basically writing to thank them, to, to thank them for what they've done for him, to encourage them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, and just to encourage them in their walk with him per se. And so we believe that this letter speaks just as much today as it did 2,000 years ago. He's writing to a young church to encourage them. And so we can listen to these words and be encouraged ourselves this morning. So we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2, build to it going on. So all the chapters and all the verses bit that we've added kind of break some of that. But actually there's a, there's a flow to this letter. And at this point in the letter... Paul's gone on about all sorts of things. He's given us deep theological truths and stuff that's really kind of grounding us and and helping us. And today, we kind of see the humanity of Paul. We get to pick up something about people that he he values and loves. So let's read this. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. It will come up on the screens. Or um, if you've got Bibles, grab them. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor, people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So Father, we thank you for these words. And we ask now that you will speak through them into our hearts and minds this morning. Amen. I've come to, this, to the very slow realization that um, I make stupid decisions when I'm on my own. And um, some examples I'd like to give to you. The first example of this is... Um, 
if Anna ever sends me to go do the food shopping, which is quite rare because it takes me a, a while and I'm not as efficient and as money conscious as Anna, so it, there's challenges. And part of the reason for that is because I'm on my own, and so whilst I'm doing the food shopping, I think I'll just have a sausage roll. I'll just, I'll just have an ice bun or a packet of crisps or something. And I'll have it and I'll buy it and um, I'll get to the car with all the stuff and then of course I'll eat it before I get home so that Anna never knows until she finds the wrapper left in the car later on. But that's not the worst one. That is not the worst one. The worst one, the place where I, I think I'm at my most stupid when I'm on my own is when I'm doing a long journey somewhere. Um, and if you guys have to travel for work, and I, I, I genuinely don't know how you do this without doing what I do next. So if I have to drive somewhere, in particular if I have to drive somewhere for long distance first thing in the morning, I love it. I love being on my own. I love being able to shut out the world. No one can phone me or email me or anything. I can't deal with all that. I'm just going to drive, do my own thing. And then actually in that time, pretty much the only words that come out of my mouth are, can I have a double sausage and egg McMuffin meal with an extra hash brown, please? <laughs> on my own, I do stupid things. I make stupid decisions. And we know that, don't we? We know it to be true. We know that when we isolate ourselves, different things become different challenges for us. Whether it's stuff that's running around in our heads, whether it's decisions about what food we're going to eat, or whatever it may be. Temptations that we face when we're on our own, things become harder work. There was a study done recently that I read about, that um, was done by some professors in Harvard, and uh, they, they found that people who isolated themselves were three times more likely to die than those who had strong relational connections. This is, I wrote this down because I thought this was... Um, we all need to hear this bit. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, sleep habits, no exercise or excessive alcohol use, but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. In other words, it is better to eat chocolate with friends than broccoli alone. <laughs> that was in their report. Now, clearly, it's probably better to eat broccoli with friends, but let's ignore that bit for a moment. The study went on to say, if you belong to no group but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Church is good for people. When we isolate ourselves, we are putting ourselves at risk. And the Harvard research shows us actually stuff that we could have just picked out of the Bible and, and said. In Genesis chapter 2, the first time that it is mentioned in the whole scripture that something is not good is when it is said that man saw God was alone and it was not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And we all know the truth of this, of what isolation feels like and looks like and why it becomes a form of torture. Paul knew isolation well. 
Paul was a man who had been in prison, is in prison at this point of writing this letter. He knows what it feels like to be alone. And so as we jump into this this part of the, the letter, we see kind of a little bit more of who his heart is. Paul talks to us about two friends, two great relationships that he has, that he wants to kind of commend and encourage the church at Philippi about. And so he writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy. Timothy was born in Lystra, which is um, modern-day Turkey. He had a Greek dad and a Jewish believing mother, as the text tells us. So she believed in Jesus. But we think, and again, this is kind of making up from some of the answers that we get and working it all out, that Timothy probably came to faith through Paul, probably on Paul's first missionary journey. But on Paul's second missionary journey that we get to read about in Acts 16, Paul says, I want Timothy to come with me. I want, I want this man to come along and be part of what I am doing. Because Paul had obviously seen something in him. He'd obviously gone, there is something in this young man that I want to invest in, that I want to call out, that I want to cheer him on and encourage him to be and to do. This guy could, could be something really special. And so Paul took it upon himself to invite Timothy into that relationship. It would have been the norm in in this day and age that uh, the the son would have always followed the father into the the family business. That's just how it worked. Unless you were kind of going off to become a rabbi, that was the journey that people would have been in. And so Paul says, right, come on, Timothy. Come on, be like my son. He describes him as a father-son relationship. And he says, I'm going to teach you. You can watch me. You can copy me. You can learn from me. You can become and do things like I would become and do. You would speak the gospel to the world around us. Paul mentored Timothy. And he saw so much in him. He loved him like a son. And so Paul was then able to write that actually, when he's writing this kind of glowing reference of who Timothy is, he doesn't say, well, Timothy's a great preacher. He doesn't say, oh, Timothy's a really devout man. He says, Timothy will show genuine concern for your welfare. Because he knows that that's the type of person that Timothy is. He knows that Timothy is the type of person who will genuinely love others, will go the extra mile for them. There's a link here in the passage that you, if you've been tracking with us through this Philippian story, you'll realize there's a verse that Paul uses that he's already kind of used before. Paul says about Timothy, well, he says, but everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, is how Paul writes it in this part of chapter 2. But at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul's implored us to already be like that, to act that way, to not look to ourselves, but to look for the interests of others. And then he says, ah, here's Timothy. He actually does it. He lives this out. He will show genuine concern for you. Because he's shown it. He's proved it. He's been that person. When Paul um, 
ends up in prison for the final time. We know that Paul wrote to Timothy and asked him to come and visit him in prison. Paul knows that he is about to be martyred for the faith. And the person that he asks to come and visit him is Timothy. Because he knows, he knows that Timothy shows genuine concern. He loves him like a son. He has that depth of relationship with him. Paul goes on to talk about Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus, um, we know from his name, Epaphrodite, which was the Greek goddess. Um, now, if you've done any kind of understanding of study of stuff, you'll know that Epaphroditus was the kind of uh, goddess of love and sex and all that type of stuff. I, I, I wanted to get this right before I kind of mentioned that this morning. So I just Googled Epaphroditus just to make sure I got this absolutely correct. And the words that I... Um, were describing Epaphrodite, the Greek goddess of pleasure, passion, and procreation. Now, I think that is three Ps of a sermon that Andy Bond should preach next week. (laughs) But imagine me being called, named after that. I don't know what that says about the story about um, uh, Epaphrodite's uh, conception or what they thought he would go on to become, but this is who he is. But we believe that Epaphroditus um, came to faith again through Paul on one of Paul's missionary journeys. Certainly he had been part of the church in Philippi for about 10 years. There's a bit of a 10-year gap, uh, scholars tell us, from Acts 16, where we're reading about what's going on in Philippi, to when the letter from Paul is written from prison in Rome to the church in Philippi. And so we think Epaphroditus, sorry, I'll get that right one moment soon, Um, Epaphroditus had been part of that church for 10 years. He'd grown up, he'd kind of been seen as like an elder within the church. People knew him, they respected him, they they saw stuff within him. Because Epaphroditus gets sent to Paul when he's in prison. In Philippians chapter 4, we we read that um, Epaphroditus brings a financial gift from the church to give to Paul. So he was trusted. Trusted enough to even, even go on the journey, but trusted enough to take the resources that the church had given and go and bless Paul with that. So he must have been held in some esteem amongst everybody else. And so then Paul goes on to talk about him and to kind of explain a little bit about his character, about how he almost died to help others. He came, he gave the money to Paul, he stayed with Paul, he served uh, with Paul alongside him, he got sick and almost died for the sake of the gospel. Paul describes Epaphroditus as like a brother. Not a son, but a brother. He's a peer, but the mercy on Epaphroditus and he didn't die, he goes on to say it was not only on Epaphroditus that he saved his life and had mercy, but also on me. Because if he had died, I thought Paul was this super spiritual hero that was talking about rejoicing in the midst of suffering and, and doesn't like it. Actually, we see in this moment, Paul was like, no, I'm real, I'm normal. There would have been sorrow in the midst of all of this because he loves him like a brother. Paul knew that it was not good. And so he sends these glowing references about both Timothy and Epaphroditus. But what does it teach us? Well, I think there's two immediate questions. And they're both quite simple. But do you have a Paul? 
Do you have a Paul in your life who will either treat you like a son or a daughter or treat you like a brother or a sister? Someone who will speak into your life and encourage you, see something in you and bring out the best in you, cheer you on. I often get in trouble with some of the team if I use the same illustrations than I've used before. And so I apologize if what I'm about to say you have heard me say before. And I know that I will be made fun of for saying this. But when I ran the Paris Marathon, yes, I know, a body like this, ran a marathon, it's all good. I had, I had Phil written across the front of my T-shirt. Phil is quite an interesting name to speak with a French accent. So as I was running around Paris, I was getting all these, Allez, fille, allez, fille. And I was like, what are they saying? Go on, Phil. Go on, Phil. These are strangers, people I'd never met before in my life and I will never see again. But their encouragements to me, their shouts of encouragements to me, helped me drag myself, I was going to say something different there, around 26.2 miles. That is a picture of what the church should be. Who is your Paul? The person who sees you, encourages you, says that you can do it, shows you how to do it, says, come and copy me, come and be part of me. Let me encourage you and mentor you and disciple you. Do you have a Paul? I think there's probably two responses in the midst of that question. Some of you are going, oh yeah, I know exactly who my Paul is. And others of you who are going, I can't find a Paul. I can't, I don't know, where would I find someone to do that for me? Well, second question that I think comes out of this text is who are you being Paul to? Who are you encouraging, mentoring, getting alongside, saying to people, you can do this, let's keep going, let's do life together, let's not just stop on our own. Be a Paul and find a Paul are the two very simple things that come out of this passage. Make sure we invest in the relationships around us. Find someone who you can treat as a son or a daughter, who you can mentor in the faith, but also find a peer, someone that will walk with you and encourage you and equip you in the midst of everything that you face. Because we know that isolation is bad. I heard a story this week um, about Starbucks. Starbucks who, in my mind, um, their business model wasn't about serving good coffee. I'll leave that up to you to decide whether they do that or not. But they did decide to create a um, kind of an experience. Come and get coffee with us. Come and form community. Come and have this kind of moment where you can sit in a coffee shop and be with your friends. Starbucks, for the first time last year, their in-store profit ratings flatlined. Their drive-through stores are still making increasing profits, but their in-store profits flatlined. So they decided, Starbucks have decided, and this may only be in the States, to do, um, you can order a takeaway coffee and they will deliver it to your house. I mean, that raises all sorts of questions. Right? If you are in that much need of a latte that you have to 
get Uber Starbucks or whatever it is to come and deliver your latte to your door. Just buy a kettle, people. Make it yourself. It's the first thing. The other question is what does that tell us about isolation? That we're now in a world where we, would, we, don't even, we can't even face putting on some clothes, going down to a Starbucks to get our coffee, that we just want to stay in our tracky bottoms and get someone to deliver it to us. We live in a world where actually we are valuing isolation more and more and comfort more and more, but at the same time we're seeing our anxiety and our mental health issues go through the roof. It is not good for man or woman to be alone. We must not isolate ourselves. We must continue to be in relationship with one another. And that is why we gather as church. We gather in church to worship Jesus absolutely 100%, but we, as we do it, we find benefit in doing that. Some of you may say and come fight back on some of these things. Actually, it's painful, Phil. I don't want to be in a relationship. I want to. Some people wind me up and annoy me. But that's where we get those edges knocked off us. We know that there's someone else with us in these moments. And I know that when I had to get in a car this week at six o'clock to drive to London for a meeting, that because I had two other people in the car with me, I went nowhere near McDonald's. Because we make better decisions when we are in relationship with one another. Do you have a Paul? Are you being Paul to anybody else? Because as we do that, life changes. And I'm not saying that there's spiritual disciplines and there are times when we need to have those moments where we withdraw from everyone else and we kind of take the pressure off. The introverts amongst us, that is a, that is a good thing. And actually, when we look at the model of Jesus, we see the one person who lived this life perfectly. But actually, he withdrew and spent time on his own in relationship with God. 40 days in the wilderness. Mornings, early times, getting up to go off and pray. But as he did those things, he was then propelled into relationship. He didn't stay isolated. It allowed him to go there so that he could then go in and be with the crowds. We must not isolate ourselves. We need Epaphroditus relationships because that will be the authentic community that we're trying to build here. And if you're new here this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to say to you, this, come and be here. Come and find these type of relationships that might want to encourage you and spur you on and speak life over you. The Harvard research says it will cut your chances of dying in the next year in half. So what, is, what have you got to lose? So may we be an authentic community which is Christ-centered because I think that to me sounds like we'll be playing our part in seeing the transformation of this city and beyond. Can I invite you to stand?